a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Gino Borges, and I want to thank you all for joining us today on the Journey of Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. This Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we will naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, the series is designed to create space for uncovering the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact is less concerned about the outcomes or results of actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the impact world, illumining one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Sasha Dichter, who is the co-founder of 60 Decibels, an end-to-end impact measurement company, making it easy to listen to the people who matter most. Clients include Acumen, CDC, the UK Department for International Development, Soros Economic Development Fund, and many more. Prior to 60 decibels, Sasha was Chief Innovation Officer of Acumen, a global community changing the way we tackle poverty. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Sasha, Let's go back to that moment where um, you realized that uh, you wanted to be involved in helping people, not so much from an investing perspective, but I mean, where did that um, become evident to you that, I mean, you're really interested in helping people. Maybe you didn't even know what form or shape it would take at that particular period of time. Um, I'll just start right at the beginning then. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know. I think we all have winding paths and they only make sense in retrospect. But um, on some level, to me, I I had the great privilege to be born, you know, in New York City uh, in kind of a comfortable setting. um, And but my parents were both uh, immigrants to this country. My mother is originally from Brazil. And my father uh, arrived here in when he was two years old, having been born in the Jewish ghetto in Shanghai. So I think that we grow up all hearing stories about um, our families and our lives. And it was easy to hear that story and recognize that a lot of things needed to happen to have my parents find one another in New York and, and um, all the people who needed to help them uh, make that happen. Um, and in particular, on my father's side, people who helped his uh, parents uh, when they were fleeing Poland uh, during the Second World War. Um, so I think that um, created a sense of awareness of um, uh, of the world around me and of my good fortune. And then probably on top of that, you know, more concretely, uh, though I grew up in New York City, I would visit my grandparents uh, on my mother's side in Brazil and in Rio in particular uh, pretty regularly when I was a kid. And Rio is a city that's all kind of squished up on itself with a lot of the wealthy sections of town, you know, pushed up against the mountains where the favelas are, where the slums are. 
Um, and my grandmother had a living room, which I still remember vividly, that had windows looking out into one of those slums. Um, and it felt like a very, you know, even at the age of 10 or 12, um, felt like a very vivid and real representation of, um, again, kind of the fate and randomness of all of our lives and kind of which side of the glass I happen to have been born on. Um, so, I, you know, and anybody I talk to who does impact work um, has some sort of story of kind of, I think it's, you know, it begins with awareness and some sort of sense of, gosh, the world is an incredibly unfair, very random place. Um, and I knew from very early on that I had been, I and my family had been um, the beneficiaries of acts of kindness and generosity and bravery on the parts of lots of other people um, and felt like uh, maybe if I could make some meaning from that and from the sacrifices that other people made uh, in my own life, that that was sort of the least that I could do. So um, that I think that's where the seed came from. And um, and also I think there's sort of a selfish interest, ironically, in tackling difficult problems in service of other people. Um, and most of the problems that are unsolved in the world are the difficult, interesting ones. So uh, a little bit self-serving in that way. Sure. And when you mention a fair world, I mean, what does a fair world look like to you? Is, is your work in impact to bring about a fair world? And if and if it's part yes and also more, but also what's more importantly is to understand, like, what does that vision of a fair world look like? Um, I mean, I can tell you what a fair world doesn't look like perhaps more easily, which is you know, where we're born and to whom we're born is probably the most important determinant of what our life can and can't look like. Um, and, I, you know, I firmly believe that human potential is kind of fairly and equally distributed around the world and human capacity to realize that potential is extremely unfairly distributed. Um, and so we're wasting, you know, world's worth of intelligence and opportunity and understanding. Um, so that doesn't seem good for anybody. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, there's also kind of a dominance of um, certain, you know, a narrow set of cultures and cultural beliefs and, um, you know, pretty narrow view of capitalism and all of those things have done great things and terrible things kind of all at the same time. So, um, but at the individual level, uh, again, my knock on wood, I, I could have messed up the hand that was dealt to me, but I was dealt a pretty great hand. Um, and I, didn't really, not didn't really, I didn't do, I literally didn't do a thing to deserve that. Um, it should matter a lot less um, than it does. So do you navigate between some level of guilt and appreciation and awareness? And is there paradoxical emotions as a result of, hence, your ovarian status that uh, you're talking about, this ovarian lottery status, and that right. the impact space could be essentially compensation? for it and like an outlet to address it? I'm just trying to understand yeah. sort of. Uh, I mean, emotionally, no, it doesn't feel that way, honestly. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, when I feel guilt, it's around, you know, misdeeds that I've personally done. Um, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I'd like to think that we all have the chance to do something useful in our kind of brief moment here. Um, and to me, I, I feel like I've been trying to figure out what that useful thing might be for most of my professional life and seem to have hit on a set of things um, that align with my skills and interests and how I see the world. Um, but I, 
uh, I guess to answer your question more directly, that feels pretty backwards looking. Um, and, um, I feel like the forward looking view is to kind of get on with the work, um, and do the work. I feel like my energy is better spent understanding the problems that I'm trying to work out and understanding myself, um, so that I can over time become more capable at doing more. Um, and that's kind of enough to occupy, um, kind of one's both emotional energy and, and actual energy, let alone all the other things we're trying to do in life, uh, and then day to day, day to day. Now, I mean, you speak about your work. When, when does your work feel like work and when does it feel like flow? Where in one case, there's sometimes where work feels like, gosh, it takes so many inputs just to get me going and moving through a particular problem. Uh, and then in certain contexts, is this like you're being almost ethereal realm is, you know, is supporting you? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a great uh, short essay by Peter Drucker called Managing Oneself, um, which I return to, you know, in some, with some regularity. Um, and it has to do with how you kind of process information and how you learn. And, and again, using very different language than you've just used. But um, I feel like uh, I am. Uh, I'm at my best when I'm kind of working with people to solve problems. Uh, I'm most kind of uh, my, uh, you know, when I have great counterparts of people who will challenge or ask great questions or um, just kind of get into an idea with me and roll up their sleeves with me, um, that creates a lot of creative energy for me. Um, and um, it's interesting because I think I was confused about this for a while because I'm a pretty analytical person. Um, but I am the, both my parents are classical pianists. Um, I grew up, uh, as a musician and, and I kind of always thought of that as kind of a technical skill and didn't think of myself as an artist in, in any real way. Um, but I think over time I discovered that I am, uh, most joyful when I'm creating things. Um, I can be creating new things or can be building things, but kind of this act of figuring stuff out and then doing that follow through. Um, is when I think that I'm at my best um, and I'm enjoying it the most and kind of more minutely, you know, if I can work with someone to work through an idea and kind of get to a great solution, you know, that time really flies by um, in, in a nice way. And then occasionally when I'm writing, but not usually. <laughs> yeah, I, I see. I have, a sim I have a similar experience when, uh, when uh, writing. What is the, um, um, I, I want to sort of get at this idea of the assumption that uh, there's a lot of problems in the world and uh, really want to understand the, um, this assumption that's, that's just already framing things as a problem and solution. And that often turns into like a motivation for people to solve problems. Can we sort of back up and and really think through or feel through perhaps the limitations of automatically buying into that uh, way of seeing the world? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I don't know. I struggle. I struggle to get past it. I think that we, you know, I mean, it feels like a kind of a obvious series of observations, but we have enough capacity to produce 
to feed everybody, but people go unfed. We have the most knowledge about medical well-being and health that we ever had, and we found ways to have our lifespans declining. Um, we have this incredibly productive planet, and we're going through a mass extinction in which 200 species are going extinct every day. Um, and I think we have, I can't remember what the number is, 17 years or so before climate change reaches a certain irreversible level. So, um, uh, you know, I, I guess my view is we've uh, we found a way to create a great deal of kind of productive abundance, which is probably different than other kinds of abundance. Um, but lifespans are longer and um, a lot of things that are pretty university, universally valued about decreasing suffering and increasing lifespans are all improving. So I think there's a ton of good news. Um, but I also feel like uh, one is there's a, um, a lot of people have benefited from that and half of the world's population doesn't. Um, but I think more, you know, as importantly, I, I'm not sure that we even have a narrative as a society, and I'm talking more about the American society right now, but I think we're doing a good job of determining a lot of conversations globally. Um, I'm not sure that there's, you know, the U.S. has a narrative around opportunity. Um, I'm not sure there's a narrative around kind of everybody flourishing. Um, so um, I don't know if that really gets directly at your question about you know, problems or solutions, I guess I feel like we've never lived, like ours is really the first generation which you can imagine, you know, freedom from and you kind of have your long list of things that you would imagine a lot of people would agree we want to be free from. And so um, that potential feels unrealized, but also feels within our reach. Um, so I think our leverage right now is greater than it's ever been. Do you think that there may be some um, way into understanding these problems? You mentioned climate, you, you mentioned medicine, you mentioned lifespan and um, the abundance and yet the shortcomings of those in terms of access to some people, but not to everybody. Is there, um, if we step back and just see those as sort of outer world symptoms of something that's taking place within our hearts as a collective, do you see sort of any room there to explore and maybe understand that, hey, look, all these symptomatic outer world issues are a byproduct of something else? Um, my, my, my initial response is I have two, well, I guess I have two, I find myself having two different responses. So one response is um, historically, for all of mankind, a lot of the, you know, we've sort of materially been poor. I mean, until about the industrial revolution, the state of everyone was to be poor and to have relatively short and violent lives. Um, so one view says, this is nothing in our collective hearts. It's the normal state of the world to be that way. And somehow we managed to industrialize and change that for better or for worse. And I think it's probably both. Um, but another view um, would, uh, my sort of so my other response is, and despite all of that, I do think that we have built a system um, that is always based on some sort of divisions and separation. Um, and I think that's also kind of in in human nature. I think we're a very tribal uh, species, and I think we understand the world kind of naturally and are wired to understand the world as us and them. Um, and that's how we 
we kind of think form groups and survived. And from the, you know, the oldest records of how commerce happened and how trade happened, there was differences in how you treated both money and people within your in-group as opposed to people in your out-group. Um, and um, the idea that you would, for example, charge interest was only allowable if you charge interest to people who are not of your group. So those distinctions go back to the beginning. And so I think that that need to def make sense of the world by creating division and separation runs pretty deep in us. And I don't think that it's new, but um, everything's gotten a lot, our capacity to take all of these ideas and make them much more, much larger and much more robust has certainly accelerated. So I guess that's a long meandering way to get to, my answer to that question would be, I don't know that there's anything new, but I think that um, we're kind of, we're manifesting a lot of um, our natural tendencies um, and maybe not having the awareness to under, you know, I think we, there's a very um, appealing story that all the systems that we've created are, um, I guess, morally agnostic. Um, and, you know, there's opportunity and, you know, if you rise to the top, it's because you worked hard and all these, all these sort of self-serving stories. And so I think those sorts of narratives are kind of new and, and serve a particular function. Um, but I think the idea of, of separation and groups and all these sorts of things feel like they go back to, you know, our need to survive way back when. So help me understand um, the possibilities that, um, sure, there may be a primal tendency to tribalize, to separate us versus them. But then there's also another part of us that understands that there's a certain limitation on how far we can extend our, our, our life force into the world without collaboration, without going beyond. A large part of our seemingly material achievement has been the byproduct of going beyond our tribes and extending beyond our physical, immediate, tribal sphere. So help me understand where there might be room to also understand that awareness alone has helped us sort of soften or assuage that primal tendency and how it may not be necessarily in our best interest, meaningly, meaning to just simply assume primal tendency as the driving motive, but there may be actually a larger collaborative interest that we have beyond the single competitive motivation that you previously shared. Uh, I'll take a stab at that. That was the questions keep getting bigger. Uh, so um, uh, I, I guess listening to your describe that, I mean, I think that the, the impetus to cooperate and to compete coexists very well and very naturally. Um, and um, whether it's extending the notion of family beyond people who are literally your family and then to your tribe and then beyond that. So um, I, I guess what I would say is um, uh, this is um, yeah, I think there, I don't mean to imply that sort of we are just naturally kind of uh, tribal, non-enlightened people writ large. Uh, but more to sort of, I guess I was trying to respond to this notion of are, you know, are the challenges that we're experiencing right now manifestations of something new? And I guess it feels to me like they may not be. Um, I guess I could 
your, your last, uh, what you last described is feels to me like, do we have a natural tendency to overcome that as well? And is that evolving and growing in any, you know, positive way? I don't know that I, I don't know that I know the answer to the question. It sort of feels like yes and no, and depends on what, you know, part of the elephant you look at. Um, so, um, I, 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 I see a lot of positive things to look at definitely. And a lot of, um, you know, people living their entire lives in service of others and in connectivity and with raising self-awareness. Um, I do think that when you start to talk about, um, kind of the state of the world and where it's going, um, one, one has no choice, but to think in kind of the level of large systems and large ideas and large structures, because those win out almost every time against an individual enlightened person who's trying to overcome what they put in place. Now, let's take what you sort of laid out in the first 15 minutes as our way of being, our way of potentially knowing in the world, our, our, our place in the world, and then overlay it in the impact investing space. And where does uh, notions of like competition and cooperation um, get leveraged and that dialectic get leveraged to actually um, solve, address these outer problems that you're talking about, whether it's climate change, whether it's racial issues and, and so forth. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, at the heart of what impact investing, so this sort of what impact investing is and what it could be, um, you know, so you know, you've been kind of exploring a lot of kind of, you know, non-dualistic ways of approaching problems as we've been talking. Um, and the thesis of impact investing is exactly that. Um, I think the challenge has been a few things, but most fundamentally is I'm not sure that most of the practitioners who signed up to be part of this uh, kind of read the label on the package. If you, if, so um, I don't, and, and, and I think conversely, I think most of the people who are really motivated by kind of that level of, you know, enlightened non-dual creation of, I don't know, enterprises investing in value by and large are not the people who have the most technical skills to do the kinds of things that investors typically do. Um, and so um, I think that as a sector, we mostly don't uh, enjoy grappling with kind of the fundamental underlying questions uh, because at its most basic um, impact investing could be a questioning of whether the best way to measure an investor is versus kind of a single optimization of financial return. And I think impact investing's trying to say, you know, maybe that's not the answer. Um, you know, maybe um, there are other things you could be optimizing for, and most obviously not just financial value, but social value. Um, it's hard to do that. And it's hard to do that as a, you know, it's hard to do that. It's hard to know if you're succeeding, you know, the company that we just created you know, at its most basic is trying to say, we want to make it much, much easier to understand what it means to create impact. Um, because we feel like we need to give you the tools, you who are deploying impact capital, 
um, the tools to kind of understand what it means to succeed on two axes rather than one axis. Um, so that's kind of the more practical side of the equation. I think at the personal level, you know, it's hard enough to kind of execute the job, if you will, um, and to do that as a process of kind of self-enlightenment, um, uh, you know, I think is an individual pursuit, but I don't think as a sector we want to do that because I think as a sector, uh, we are embedded within a much larger sector of um, investment and that sector doesn't speak that language. You know, so I think that there's a lot of really practical considerations that are happening in impact investing uh, to try to grow and try to be relevant to people who are not, um, you know, individually looking for kind of enlightenment and financial returns. People who just say, look, I care about the planet. I care about the world. I care about people. And um, maybe my investment portfolio could align with that a little bit more. So I think there's a there's a long road to walk. Um, but ironically, we are deeply, deeply embedded into the core institution. You know, we're deeply, deeply, sorry, um, uh, trying to persuade and influence the core institutions of capitalism. And I think as a sector, we've been trying to figure out what the best way is to affect change um, when that is kind of, you know, what we're tied at the hip with. How do you navigate that uh, tension between um, trying to influence the larger system and yet, um, trying to influence it, it seems like the impact space has its mechanics of impact who want to appropriate the tools of the larger financial system and superimpose them on the impact space. Um, and then there's a part of me that's very weary of that type of imposition on the space, primarily because the quality of those tools is going to be the quality it's going to be superimposed on your particular space. And let me just ground this for a bit. The idea is, is that <clears throat> there's always a tendency to approach the language of the whole to, to what you're trying to create. And I wonder where the limitation is of the current impact space that is, um, has its, how would I say this, has a motivation or has an interest or a certain part of the community in reducing it down to categories, reducing it down to metrics. And I wonder, while, while we have particular good intentions, I'm just wondering how much of that systemic change you can get at by using essentially the matrix as tools um, in your space, or is it we need our own set of tools and then start sharing those tools with, I mean, the outer world. And I know it's a little of both, but I'm curious about how a guy in, in your position sort of navigates that. It's like, oh, man, I just feel like I'm being part of the larger financial machinery in what I'm doing versus, oh, I really feel like I'm contributing to a new way of being in the world. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's try to unpack that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and, a couple of years ago, Clara Miller, when she was um, still the president of the Heron Foundation, wrote a great essay that was essentially about this. And she talked about impact investing not wanting to be a terrarium. And I think that's a good point, right? So, you know, we can be small and perfect. Um, and then we can sort of assume that someday we'll influence the larger whole. But the larger whole ain't easy to influence. So I do think that we, um, you know, one of our bigger risks is that we can be a little bit precious. Um, and, 
and I think that's, uh, in a way, you know, you have to decide kind of which risk you like better. You know, am I worried about being appropriated by the larger system or am I worried about being irrelevant? Um, and, uh, I, I guess I'd worry, frankly, I'd worry more about being irrelevant. Um, and, um, and what I think that said, I think what the opportunity we have, you know, there, there, expectations are changing, whether it's a generational change or just recognition of, you know, some of the limitations of capitalism, some of the cracks in capitalism, some of the, you know, kind of structural inequality that's just getting accelerated. But so there is a movement in a direction. And I think recognizing that there's a movement in the, in the direction, then uh, we also have a window of time in which to seize an opportunity. And uh, so I, I, I feel like, you know, you'd ask this other question, do you feel like, you know, there's this, this appropriation going on or the risk of appropriation going on? And I think the answer to that is, there's absolutely all of those risks. Um, but we don't um, minimize those risks by kind of putting our heads in the sand and saying we want to play small. Um, you know, and so when, you know, multiple mainstream multi-billion dollar impact funds come into the world, you know, we, either we can howl at the moon and say they're not perfect enough um, or we can say um, oh my god it's the greatest thing in the world thank god you've arrived or we can do neither of those things god willing and actually try to be useful and helpful and share what we've learned and influence where we can and um, provide tools and hold people accountable you know so and and again going back a little bit more to the to the practical, um, uh, you know, the reason we start, you know, the reason we started a social impact company, which is not the sexiest thing to do, um, and not easy because um, the experience right now of social impact and social impact measurement is this kind of um, kind of heavy kind of tax on even people who really want to do good work. Like, I really want to do good work. Oh. Here comes the impact measurement. Like, oh, I guess I'll, you know, grin and bear. I mean, it's pretty insane, right? Because you think of a world in which literally it's like, okay, well, let me understand this correctly. You've devoted your life to this kind of service and whatever, you know, whatever that means to you. Um, and we're here to help you understand if you're actually doing it. It's not perfect, but we'll help you get a lot more information than you had before. The idea that that information wouldn't be anything but like, um, you know, a glass of water if you're in the desert doesn't really make sense when you describe it that way. Um, but that's the reality, right? But the reason is because right now, if you are deploying impact capital, and I don't care if you're an impact investor or a major foundation or an individual with a family office, um, if I go to you and say, how are you understanding whether or not you're creating that impact? You could look me in the eye and say, you know, it's really hard and it's kind of distracting um, and it takes away from me actually creating that impact. And so I'm not really putting the resources into it. I would have to sort of nod and say that's a reasonable response to have today. And so if even the most well-intentioned people, let alone the ones who aren't, um, can reasonably say, you know, just understanding at some basic level, my impact performance is too hard, then we have a major, that's just a systemic problem. It's not necessarily the case that we solve that problem, we solve all the problems. But what we're trying to do is to say, okay, if you are anywhere in the world doing essentially anything in the world, um, if you are working with people, um, we can make it really easy for you to understand where and how and how much you're creating impact for them. 
So we want to make it impossible for people to say, oh, I'd really like to, but it's such a pain, right? And if we can make that impossible, um, then we can start changing a default behavior. And I guess in my view, when I think about change and how change happens, one of our most powerful levers is change of defaults, right? And so default right now is like, so default 50 years ago was like, if I'm an investor, I'm trying to make money. If I'm a company, I'm trying, so there's a default that's slowly shifting, right? That's not the only thing. Hmm. Um, in the context of people who are trying to create impact, I think the honest default behavior has been either I won't really do any measurement of impact, or if I do, like we'll all just collectively understand that nine out of ten times it'll be off to the side. And what we're trying to say is, you know, we learned how to do financial performance, operational performance, you know, cycles of improvements. I mean, everything you think about when you think of running um, a high-functioning, large-scale organization are tools that we created to drive towards excellence. Uh, but we, if we create a tool that would drive us towards excellence of the creation of social impact, and I think the only way you do that is with speed, with feedback loops, with the need to be responsive, all these sorts of things. So those characteristics that you would apply to all the other kind of um, skills that we've developed as a world, if you could develop that skill and impact, you, you, you create a shift to default um, and you create an improvement cycle. And then, so then I think we would be in a different spot, right? Because then the, all the people who are in impact because they really care about impact would have greater tools and they'd get better. And all the people looked you in the eye and said, you know, I'm not really going to bother. Then you can have a conversation around accountability to say, well, it's kind of straightforward and really useful. Um, so you're not wanting to do it now transmits to me something about your actual underlying intent rather than just our kind of poor capacity as a sector to deliver kind of basic tools um, to do the work that we say is important. That's really well said. Yeah, I mean, thanks for sort of walking that um, high wire. Um, I mean, that was really well said. I love your notion of default behaviors and sort of really understanding how that either supports the space or actually hinders the space. And then also providing these uh, tools to uh, make us relevant, which I think is a nice segue into your current endeavor in terms of 60 decibels. Um, help us understand the origin and the motivation and how it all sort of transpired um, to move from your previous endeavor at mm -hmm. Acumen to 60 decibels. Yeah, well, it's a really, it's a really continuous line um, in that uh, anyway, starting even before my time. I mean, I joined Acumen in 2007. Acumen was founded in 2001. And from day one, Acumen... Um, you know, wanted to do a few things, wanted to deploy, you know, for-profit capital to create social change for low-income customers, which at the time seemed kind of crazy, um, and now is very commonplace. Um, but the other thing that they wanted to do is really shift philanthropy and create a culture of transparency and accountability with respect to philanthropic capital. Um, so what Action wanted to do is to say, look, if you're a philanthropic donor in San Francisco and we deploy your capital somewhere in India, you really need to have full understanding of where it's going, what it's doing, and is it creating social impact? So that that commitment was woven into the DNA of the organization. And from day one, Acumen was involved in trying to build systems and approaches to make it possible to do that. 
Um, and so we did it for ourselves. We helped work with a bunch of the organizations in the sector to create some of the impact measurement standards. And we've kind of constantly been creating tools and software and other sorts of things. So that heritage was there. And I think that intent was there. And those two things obviously are kind of the soil in which we uh, grow new, new things. Um, and then uh, in 2012, I became responsible for the impact function and acumen as well as a few other things. And we kind of did an auditing of what our, what our practice of impact measurement had been as a kind of hundred plus million dollar impact investing fund. And fundamentally we came to the conclusion that we were putting out a lot of resource to try, we were taking it really seriously. We were deploying capital the way we wanted to deploy it, but our impact measurement system wasn't making us better at deploying capital, um, wasn't a learning system. Um, and frankly, kind of all the things I just talked about before, it just wasn't doing any of those things, despite we you know, I honestly think we we're trying as hard or harder than anyone. Um, and so we built what then became our lean data impact measurement approach to solve our own challenge within Acumen, um, which first and foremost was to understand if we were an organization that exists to serve low-income customers, we wanted to understand if we really were, um, and then over time to, to better quantify impact. And so, um, and, I, and I think the other thing that helped us, you know, in many ways, I think constraints are very helpful because they force us to kind of innovate through them and innovate around them. And one of the most important constraints was we needed a system that worked for a for-profit social entrepreneur who was struggling to grow and struggling to make ends meet. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you're in a, if you're in that setup, it can't be really expensive and it can't be slow. Um, and from day one, you know, we called the team then the lean data team. We didn't call ourselves the social impact measurement team. Um, and instead of going to a CEO and saying, hi, we're the impact measurers and we're here to help, which is a great way to get shown the door, uh, we would go to a CEO and say, hi, um, do you feel like you understand your customers as well as you would like to understand them? And if not, can we help you with that? And every CEO worth her salt, if you ask her that question, will say, I don't understand them as well as I'd like. And I'd really like to understand them better. And that grounding really helped us. And that's been our kind of our North Star from the beginning. Um, and then, you know, a lot of what we've done is a lot of innovation in the how. You know, you know, one of the ways we describe what we're doing is, you know, so much of our sector is just loves to talk about the what of measurement. And it feels a lot less sexy to talk about the how. And we are here every single day to solve a how problem. And our how problem has been... How do we make it quick? How do we make it easy? And how do we make it high quality and you know, painless, burdensome, useful? All those are words that we love. Um, and so our main kind of most obvious innovation is finding a way to get really, really great data over mobile phones rather than you know, driving up to someone's house, uh, which is really expensive and you should do in some cases, but not at all. Um, the other really important how, which is less obvious, is um, we really are focused on uh, asking great questions. Um, you know, a great question is going to empower the person to whom you're speaking to describe their lived experience in an accurate way. And a terrible question will fail to do that. So we spent a lot of time writing really great questions. And then the other thing that we've done, which we didn't know we would do from the outset, is we actually have built our whole business based on conversations, voice to voice. Meaning we don't, you know, we say mobile phones, and I think people sometimes imagine we're just sending a lot of SMS messages. Um, but we actually have kind of a, a virtual network of 190 researchers in 34 countries who call people on the phone. 
and ask them a combination of quantitative and qualitative questions to really get very, very rich data um, about their lives. And so all of this is sort of an infrastructure we built to solve this like very simple question, which is, you know, again, how can I help you understand your customers better? And if you're a person who cares about impact, then that understanding that you're seeking will necessarily encompass that impact. Um, and our bar is always, if we can help that entrepreneur serve her customers better, um, if we can give her or her head of sales or whatever, um, actionable things that they can do tomorrow, um, that relates to how they serve those customers, how they create impact. Then, you know, then we're resetting a conversation again. Um, because again, the premise of impact measurement is, you know, at best, I'll create a report that maybe will go to our funders and make us look good. Um, the idea that this is an operational tool feels very novel. Um, and which is just, again, completely at odds with the idea that you've got entrepreneurs who, you know, and I use the word entrepreneur very broadly. It could be a nonprofit, for profit, it doesn't matter. But you've got entrepreneurial people who are trying to solve problems and devoting their lives to it. Um, and the idea that understanding whether or not they're fulfilling their mission would be like something that would be on the side. Again, it makes no sense. Um, but I think really we haven't solved that how question in a way that is useful to those people who are, you know, really on the front lines. And what is your role at, at 60 decibels? So I'm one of two co-founders with uh, Tom Adams. So Tom and I worked together from day one. Uh, he joined Acumen to lead the impact function and uh, built the lean data team. And we run the company and do lots of non-glamorous things like, uh, get a startup. I, I would, by the way, discourage any of your listeners to simultaneously uh, do a spin out, uh, do a capital raise, try to serve existing clients and uh, start operations in four countries at the same time. That's what we did in the first half of this year. Um, it was one too many or maybe two too many things at the same time, but we're still standing. So as an impact, I mean, it's an interesting uh, idea because, or this idea of feeling overwhelmed. I mean, how, I mean, how do you manage the feelings of overwhelm uh, or like feeling overwhelmed what you know i mean do you have a practice that helps you sort of manage that or like i mean where do you know and how do you feel into it uh yeah i mean that's just all of our life's work i think um you know we, we were talking a little before um our conversation started i have you know three kids um and my wife uh, works i work um i write a blog um starting a company for the first time in my 40s. Uh, so uh, I think to me, what helps me the most is first of all, recognizing that there's, like at the end of every day, there's always more to be done. Like there's no amount of work that I could do that would I'd be finished um, because my work is hopefully much bigger than the to-do list and the inbox and the Slack messages and uh, everything else. Um, so I think more practically, um, when I'm not traveling, I try to have a pretty structured, predictable day in terms of time and in terms of hours. And I think it helps me and the people around me kind of understand how time will work. Uh, honestly, I try to sleep enough. It's really important to me. I think uh, lots of people who run things somehow seem not to need to rest. Um, I'm not one of those people at all. Um, and I think for each of us, we need to find our things that get us grounded again. Um, for me, I'm pretty active. Uh, play squash um, and well, you know, but if probably five days a week, I'm doing some sort of physical activity and that just helps me, you know, de-stress helps me sleep at night, gets my mind off other stuff. Um, and, I, and, but you know, everyone needs to find their own thing. 
Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say is, uh, you know, as much as possible, um, and, you know, I've gotten better at this, I'd say, in the last five or 10 years when I'm not where I'd want to be, um, I do really try to have off times. Um, and so off could be, you know, I mean, literally as practical as like, we leave our cell phones on a different floor. It doesn't come into our bedrooms, um, which is you know, credit to my wife who I was like, no, it's off. It's fine. It's just there on the nightstand. And she was completely right in saying like, this is mentally not the same experience. Um, and then, you know, similarly on the weekends, just trying to be present with my family or with other, whatever other activities are. Um, that, that at least works for me because um, what I know and what I watch what happens when I travel and mostly when I'm on the road, I'm much less disciplined about all of these things. And I kind of feel like, well, I'm away, so I may as well, if I'm awake, be working. Um, and I do get a lot done, but at a certain point, I just, uh, I start to become kind of reactive and, and just buzzing and always on. And I literally can't sit still and checking my phone all the time. And I don't even know what I'm looking for. So it's you know, very easy for me to, to get in that kind of very manic place. Uh, and that's not, that's not me at my best. You know, I, I, I'm not at my best with, you know, my 15th hour. Um, I work hard. Um, you know, I probably my typical day is a 12 hour work day. Um, but that's plenty, you know, and beyond that, um, you know, I, I can't sustain, I can't be at my best for the people around me, let alone for my own well-being. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that's well said. Thank you for sharing that. When you, um, when you look at this measurement, you, you, you talked about speed or you're talking about what the how part is your focus versus the what part. Or, I mean, sure, the what is important, but the real, um, I guess, getting at the essence of the what really involves breaking down the how and being intimate with it and really um, sort of questioning its potential and limitations and risk of asking certain questions and, and so forth. But you talked about speed, velocity, and quickness, and I'm just sort of curious on how you came to the point where you realized that that was an important variable to provide for people that were hiring you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really interesting. It depends on people. So <laughs> I was talking to two different people today, and one of them who came from the private sector and asked us, well, how frequently do you think you guys should be gathering this data? And I said, well, you know, we said a minimum annually, but we recommend quarterly. And this guy's initial reaction was just like, is that all? You know, we're coming from a world in which a typical evaluation would take three years. Um, so I don't, you know, for me, I'm saying speed relative to what our common practice is. I actually think that what we're doing could be a whole other order of magnitude of speed. Um, so um, I just, what I know is if it takes me three years to study something, the purpose of that is maybe for the general pool of knowledge in the form of some sort of publication. But the purpose of that is certainly not in service of the people who are doing that work to help them under, you know, understand and improve it. Again, unless they themselves are operating on 50-year time horizons, which they might be. But in most cases, it's not. Um, so really, it's been a simple answer to the question of, if I were running something and someone said, I'm going to get you data, um, what would it have to feel like to have that data be useful to me, you know, in my daily course of business and not in my three-year strategy review? Um, and, you know, so for us, we're doing a project end-to-end -end in six to eight weeks. Um, you know, I could still imagine a world where you could do that in two or three. Um, so I do think it's all relative. It's more kind of what it isn't. And what it isn't is 
you know, again, I mean, I'm taking a giant step back to be really clear. If you want to understand whether interventions work, full stop. Does iodization work? Do school uniforms work? There is a huge space to fundamentally understanding interventions. Um, the problem we're trying to solve is not that problem. The problem we're trying to solve is, okay, you understand that a safe place to give birth really matters for maternal outcomes and child outcomes. Okay, so we've set up whatever we've set up. How's it going in, in reality? You know, so my, Tom, my co-founder, likes to joke, like, if you were to ask someone who is an investor, um, you know, how's that chain of pharmacies that you invested in, uh, in, you know, I don't know, in, in Kenya doing? And if you were to respond, well, what we've seen is typically pharmacy chains in the developing world have profit margins of about, you know, whatever, gross profit margins of 35%. And you say, no, 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 that's fine. But your chain, how's it doing? It's like, no, no, again, typically this is what we see. Like that is literally the conversation one has around impact, right? How's your maternal care? Well, in general, we see that these are the results and we've served 500 women. So we think those are the results, right? That can't be the answer. The answer we want is, how is it going for those 500 women? Um, what's going well and what's going poorly? And when you get data back that says, this is going well and this is going poorly, you want to act on it. None of that is going to happen on multi-year cycles. So um, that's, that's why we're grounded where we are. Yeah, sure. How do you know that what you are... Um, so, um, I mean, there's the, you know... The philosophy of science sort of teaches us that we can de-risk our, our our conclusions by making sure that it's wide in scope and making sure we're covering enough people over enough time, over enough space. But when after eight weeks, have you had a moment where all of a sudden your team's working really hard and you bundled up all this, you did everything right from a method perspective, but then when you just like stepped back at a gut level and looked at the outcomes that were essentially embodied in whatever methods you're employing, just didn't feel right. And then what do you do at that particular, somebody just hired you, they put you on retainer, they wrote a check, a lot of people did a lot of work, and yet you look at something and it's like, eh, this just doesn't feel like essence to me. This just feels like us moving shells around. We're not capturing the phenomenological life force that we're really trying to capture here, but we're just sort of capturing outer surface, right. uh, you know, elements. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, that can happen. I, I think that, um, I think that when that happens, it's when we're uh, kind of maybe not optimizing for the right things. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I mentioned constraints as an important thing that help us come up with a bunch of new innovations. But we also impose a lot of constraints that I've described in terms of the promises we make to the people who hire us and the promises we make to their customers. So if I'm speaking to you on the phone for 12 minutes, which might be our average survey length, there really are limitations to what I can uncover. And on top of that, you know, maybe, you know, the researcher who's speaking to you does speak your language, um, but the typical client may not have a high degree of education. Some of the questions we're asking, we've formed and they're, you know, on one to 10 scales or you very much agree, very much disagree. Um, so, you know, I think all of those limitations can creep in. Um, I think in general, um, we won't, we'll I, I hope we'll never completely miss because we have 
enough baked in, just fully open-ended questions where as long as we have a researcher who set up a degree of comfort with the people that they're speaking to, there is space for them to say, well, this is what's really going on. Um, and so I think that helps. And again, that's why we really like voice and we have always like 100% of the time completely open-ended questions so that we're not always boxing people into what we think the answer should be structured like. Um, I mean, what do you do? I mean, I think you approach it with humility. I mean, you, my only my only caveat there would be um, one of the things we're trying to overcome is I do think we think we know what impact looks like without the data. Um, and so then when someone comes back and says, this is my experience, it is a tough moment if you're like, well, that really disagrees with what I expected. And our bias is always going to be, let's start off with assuming that what the people told us is what's real. Um, so uh, I think... You know, I think in an ideal world, we would explore the data more deeply. We would try to dig into that qualitative piece. Um, and, and, and again, we always share the raw data and in, in its uh, unsynthesized form also with clients so they can dig in as well. Um, but, I, but I guess what I would also say is, um, uh, you know, the, hopefully there's always something good in everything and always something to be learned. And we are trying very hard to allow it to be imperfect. Um, because we think that's our own cycle of improvement as well. So I, you know, I think as long as we're approaching those moments, moments honestly, um, and, and sharing what we're learning and being clear what it is and what it isn't, um, hopefully that's, you know, that's as genuine as we can be in that moment. A feeder question is on this and it's related. Um, how do we make sense of the impact measurement when humans um, and our environment are changing from moment to moment. So, you know, I mean, the world, the semiotic realm that you're providing this information, the data realm is semiotic and it's trying to sort of discipline on the, this unfolding life force that's moving and shifting and dynamic. And yet the reality is our linguistic presentations and our speech is very, um, legislates reality in a lot of cases and sort of freeze frame it. And just wondering how you navigate that dialectic of like, well, here's our conclusions. Yeah, life's still moving and, and fluctuating. I'm just wondering how, like to me, the, the evolution of impact outcomes and impact reporting would really become much more of a dynamical, or I don't even know if that's a word, I just made that up. But to really sort of like, how can we parallel the semiotic realm, parallel the referent, which is moving Yet the semiotic realm just sort of like <clears throat> will freeze it for a second and say, this is this is what your customer wants. And that's when um, the uh, my sort of my inner, how would I say this? I guess that's when I get nervous is when I see impact people saying using the word is because they really confuse the report for the referent as the reference sort of unfolding in sort of real time. Sure. So um, I guess when you describe that, I would say, so there's the, the analogy I'd have is you have reality, which is the movie. You have what we're able to capture, which are hopefully really nice snapshots and you have darkness. So yes, the snapshots are not the movie, but I sure as heck rather have the snapshots than the darkness. And as long <laughs> as I can understand and be conscious of and humble about, like it's not the movie, 
It's not everything. But again, you know, if you've ever done one of these blind mazes or anything like that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't think you'd, you relish the darkness. So um, I, I hope that, you know, more kind of more on the level of meaning than on the level of practicality, which I just answered you on, more is um, in everything we're doing. I mean, we're literally, I mean, if you go to our website, you will see customer voice on the homepage, actual things that actual people are saying to us. If there's a chart that we're presenting to you, we're putting people's words right next to it. Um, so we are trying to always remind ourselves that there's a human behind every data point um, and trying to make those voices literally appear, um, partially for the practical thing that it represents, but partially just to say, hey, there's a person here. Um, it's not just a bunch of bar charts. Um, and that's hopefully how we do a little bit of that. But I don't want, you know, I don't want to overstate and say um, we don't fall into that trap. Um, you know, we do have, you know, enormous bias towards um, action and getting people to do, you know, I, you know, I still, I'll stand by the feeling that for most of our clients, if we can help them make in, more informed action with the slight risk that we're overstating reality or we sometimes get it wrong, I, I feel like 10 out of 10 times the slightly more informed action is more likely to help them create the impact they're trying to create in the world and serve those customers than the uninformed action. Um, and we can, you know, if we get really, really good at that, um, then I think we're gonna start to get smart and go, okay, great. So what are the unintended consequences? What are the biases? What are the things that we're overstating? I think that's what, I think that's what mastery and expertise begins to look like. Um, you know, you do the thing better than you did before, but poorly, and then move on from there until you master that and master that and master that. And I really do think for the kind of work that we're doing, I mean, we're one of the first organizations that's trying to tackle this piece of the problem. Um, you know, we're a few years in and it's early days. We looked three or six months ago at how we did it and we're sort of, you know, no, it could have been a lot better. Uh, and so I feel like if we can stay on that trajectory um, and, you know, if we can get to that point of um, the intention is always to get as close to that reality as possible. Um, we, I do think that we are, it's funny because we're coming up against two establishments and one of them is the one that's just, it would be easier not to actually bother doing the work. Uh, but there's another establishment, which is the expert establishment, which is saying none of this is, you know, rigorous enough, good enough, whatever, because it's done differently than the way we've traditionally done it. And I, and I think that the risk that that presents is, um, that, uh, that approach is really effectively serving like a tiny, tiny portion of the need. And the rest of that need will never be met with those approaches. And so rather than kind of advocate for our status quo, we can say our status quo can grow, can be more ample, can incorporate more tools, um, and really meet the needs of a much larger portion of the folks who are trying to create positive change in the world. Wow, you did a nice job of navigating all of the, um, you know, I, I, I remember preparing for this and I was like, I really want to uh, bring Sasha to the edge of the methods and the edge of the processes and just really curious about how he navigates, like you said, in the dark or with some light, understanding the limitations, understanding the benefits. And I mean, I feel like you're wrangling with this every day not just technically, but I can see that, that you're also processing it. And, yeah, there's uh, a, lot of, a lot of wrangling, but not many people ask me such, such tough questions, so I mostly keep it to myself. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, fair enough. 
I mean, that's part of the intent of why uh, we're doing this series is to really sort of get at that inner dynamic that, um, yeah, we're trying to do work, but where it's also paradoxical and confusing and making decisions in the midst of fog most of the time, like rarely is anything so clear, and yet we have to move in some direction sure. for a variety of reasons. I want to thank you all for joining us to listen to Sasha as part of the journey to impact. Sasha, the co-founder of 60 Decibels and uh, one of the most articulate voices in the world of impact measurements. And again, thank you, Sasha, for joining us. It was very, very, very rewarding conversation for sure. Thanks, Regina. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 